You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Introduce Nate Hobart to a lot of you this morning who are new to the church or maybe just visiting today. Uh, Nate and I go way back in a lot of different senses. We were both college students together running around in the same friend group in the late mid to late 90s, and uh, Nate was a couple years behind me, but um, I met Nate one time. He came over to our apartment. It was really more of one of those houses built in the 1910s. This ab- would have been absolutely beautiful in its heyday, and you know, some landlord carves it up into four different properties and you know, makes a bunch of money off it, but me and my roommates um, glossed our, our apartment, the promised land, and it was the land flowing with milk and fly honeys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Nate. Nathan's with it. Um, that just gives you a snapshot of Nate and I's community and squirrely college boys. I just dropped my, my daughter off at Moody Bible Institute, and I was looking at Kim like, when do they let babies on campus? You know what I mean? But she's like, yeah, you were one of them, and you were like 10 times more hyper than all these young men you've met today. And uh, it was really fun. Um, anyway, that's Nate and I's history. And uh, also, Nate and I, for those who don't know, uh, we helped plant this church uh, in 2010. And uh, Nate and I used to meet every week in staff meeting, elder meeting. You know, we hung out a lot. Our families hung out a lot. And, uh, you know, I don't see Nate as much anymore because he was sent out to plant a church. And, you know, that's, that's always challenging. You know, sending is no, not always comfortable. It's rarely comfortable. But as I think about where Nate is now almost 10 years later um, and what Redeemer City Church is doing and what that all represents, we look back and we go, was it worth it? Absolutely it was worth it. Absolutely it was worth it. And so it's just a little plug to, for us to remember that sending, it's, it's not always comfortable, but Christians have been doing it for 2,000 years now. It's part of our DNA, is we don't stay comfortable in our little Christian cul-de-sacs and no one can leave. And no, I mean, that's a cult. No one can leave. No one is sent. You know, that's a cult. Or no one can come in. Um, but I've just really, just Nate being here this morning represents our DNA of wanting to be a church that sends, that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. So Nate, um, you're not going to come up. Steffi's going to come up. And Steffi's going to read Nate's text for this morning, and then we can welcome him. All right, you can all open up to Genesis 18. is a squeaky thing. (laughs) Um, Genesis 18, starting in verse 16 through the end of the chapter 33. Um, So this is the word of the Lord. When the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? 
For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham that he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to, speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steffi. Uh, well, hey, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you're new here, we're in the midst of a Madison Multiply sermon series, which is why I'm here and not Redeemer City. And um, the Madison Multiply is simply a network of three churches, the Vine here, Eastside, and Redeemer City, who are just committed to being together to see our city saturated with healthy gospel-centered churches who are engaged in their community and who are about planting more churches and so every kind of August-ish, we do this series, and I would say this series was kind of born out of this last year. Um, we uh, at the Vine, Eastside, Redeemer City, our staff, our pastors gather once a month, and um, you know, I'll just put it this way, gospel ministry in Madison is, as with any place, it's not easy, right? And so we would meet once a month. And it just got to a point where, because we want to see this vision move forward, and simply we just said, let's just start our meetings with prayer. And so we just ended up driving into a random parking lot, all huddled in one big car, um, and for about 30 minutes we would just pray. And then we'd pray towards this vision. 
And in one way or another, this series is born out of that. We want to be a people, a movement that sees the gospel transform lives in the city, to see more churches planted in the city. In order to do that, it's just pretty obvious um, we're needy, we're dependent. And uh, today, uh, we're looking at uh, what I would say is maybe, for you, maybe a strange passage. Um, We'll get into it in a moment, but think about this way. At its simple root, it's one man praying for a city. And it's a model. It's actually an example of the kind of character that God wants to build in us as we live in Madison and as we pray for our city. So we're going to see three things this morning. The apparent problem with this prayer. Secondly, the essence of this prayer. And then lastly, the character of this prayer. So with that said, let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Father, what we do not know, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, firstly, the apparent problem with this prayer. Um, You know, some of you are familiar with this story. Others of you are not. And as we even dive into this text, if this is one of your first times this passage or maybe your fifth or tenth, it still seems strange, and here's why. Here Abraham is this sort of broker who's trying to negotiate God not to destroy a city based on the number of righteous people. And that that sequence, that kind of overarching summary, can bring a number of questions, concerns. For example, why is God going to destroy a city? That's a question. Uh, some of us, we might ask this question, I thought God was a God of love, and yet here we see him as a God of judgment. You know, recently I was listening to uh, Bill Maher, he's a political social commentator, no friend of, you know, Christianity in, in, in any sense of the word, but he was commenting on this particular passage, he just said this, the God of the Old Testament is so capricious, in other words, moody, he contradicts himself and He just mentioned how comical God seems in this passage. So what do we do with this? What's this apparent problem? How do we we wrestle with this? And the answer is actually in the text. Look with me for a moment at verse 20. God says this to Abraham. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. That's the reason. And the word outcry is actually a technical word for a cry of pain. It's, it's a word that means it's those who are being oppressed or violated. Uh, Psalm 34 uses it as a cry against unjust treatment. And we get a glimpse of this in at least a couple places of what's happening in the city of Sodom. Um, in the next section... Uh, God sends two messengers into the city, and they end up at Lot's house, Abraham's nephew's house. And the men of the town gather outside the house, outside the door, in order to violate and sexually abuse these men. And they narrowly escape. So that's an issue. But the second, actually, summary statement is actually found in the book of Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel 16, 49, describing what's happening in Sodom, puts it this way. It says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. These two examples show us what's happening in this city. On the one hand, we see there's some flagrant sexual abuse happening. Secondly, we also see there's greed. And there's a neglect of the poor. And God has heard the cry of those who are suffering in this city. And because of the degree of injustice and oppression, that's why God is going to destroy the city. So in other words, God is not someone who flies off the handle. He's not moody. But what about this? What about God being a God of love and a God of judgment? How do those fit together? Uh, Becky Pippert has this great quote, and she says this. We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So that, so what is God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind, boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably implacably hostile to injustice. In other words, what Pippert is suggesting and saying is this, it's actually because God is loving that he is angry. Do you see that? If he wasn't loving, he'd be apathetic. He wouldn't care. But what is he doing here? He sees the plight who are suffering in light of injustice and oppression. And far from being contradictory, we see actually God is good. He's good. Secondly, the essence of this prayer. Um, In verse 23, as it kind of opens here, It says this, and Abraham drew near. And the language of drew near actually has, in the original language, this idea of approaching the bench. And uh, it's a courtroom. And God's the judge. And Abraham is like a lawyer who's pleading a case. He says to God, well, what about those who are righteous? Those who aren't a part of the evil and wickedness. We, We see this in verse 25. It says this, Abraham says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And that language of just, it means this. It means that God, for him to be just, he needs to restore a community's right order under God's rule by punishing those who destroy it, with the oppression of the weak, and by delivering the oppressed. In other words, Abraham's saying this, I know your character. 
I know what you're like. So how can you destroy the city if there are righteous people in it? And then Abraham says, let's start with a number. How about 50? What if there are righteous people? And look at how God responds in verse 26. The Lord says this, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And it's right there where we see really the essence of the prayer. Abraham is saying this, Will you for a smaller amount of righteous people in the city, will you spare the entire city? And then he begins to go down in number. 45, and 40, and 30, and 20. And he gets all the way down to 10. And God's answer is, yes. If there are 10 righteous people in the city, I will spare it. But here's the problem. There's no one righteous in the city. You know, um, down the road, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot is rescued. And he's not righteous, but he's rescued. But it leaves us with this question in the middle of Genesis. And here's the question. There was someone who was righteous, who could take care of the wickedness of many. And friends, that's, that's the answer of the scriptures. Later on, a promised descendant of Abraham would come, the righteous one, Jesus. He would be crucified. He would take the justice of God for our evil and through one act make us righteous. That's the gospel. You know, Paul would write about this in Romans 5. He said this, For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's referring to Adam. And it says, So by the one man's obedience, referring to Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Do you hear the gospel? The righteousness of one would cover the wickedness of many. And in one way or another, I'll just put this morning, if you're not a Christian here this morning, that's... In one sense, what I want you to understand about this passage, that there is one who has come to take your wickedness and my wickedness and actually cover it. That's the fulfillment of Abraham's prayer here. But secondly, many of you know this, and this is the turn in this passage, because if you know this, it actually changes how you pray. And that's the last point, the character of this prayer. Pastor Dave Bisgrove has this great outline on this section. And he talks about four ways that we see how Abraham prays here. So the first one is this. Abraham prays in this passage with a boldness. One of the things that's so striking about this passage is how Abraham approaches God. You know, earlier in chapter 18... God reveals to Abraham his plan to to go and investigate what's happening in Sodom and to see if he'll bring judgment on it. And what's interesting, Abraham doesn't just sit back. He engages God in prayer. Now, just for a moment, imagine, if you will, 
that someone came to you who had great influence, power, position in the world? Like, let's say, for example, um, you had an in with Taylor Swift, or maybe Mr. Beast, or maybe Tony Evers. Did it hit everybody? Okay, good. I'm just trying to hit the older to young. Let's say for a moment, they sat down with you over lunch, and they said, hey, here's my plan. Here's, here's what I want to do. If you were sitting down with any of those people, would you have a boldness to say, hey, how about this? You see, Abraham, do you see how audacious he is? He's talking to the judge of the entire world, and he's, in one measure, negotiating with him. Pastor Dave Bisgrove has this great line. He says this, Because of the gospel, we don't approach the bench of a judge. We approach a father. Do you see how the gospel enlightens this? It gives us a boldness in how we pray. You know, one of the things, um, (laughs) you know, I've got three kids, and if I am in a meeting, an important meeting, and if they call once, I don't pick up. But if they call twice, the meeting's done. Uh, I stop everything. Why? Because they're my, they're my kids. Listen, in the gospel, know this. You're adopted. You can approach God as a father with boldness. Boldness. And to the degree you believe the gospel, that's going to shape your prayer life. But secondly, for Abraham, there's a Humility. You know, verse 27, as he's approaching God, he says, Who am I but dust and ashes? You know, as you go through the mix of this prayer, there's this tone of boldness and yet humility, this, this great mix. And one of the things that happens in prayer, let me put it this way, sometimes we stop praying because God doesn't answer the way we want. And some of you right now, you're, you're despairing. God has not answered you how you thought he would. And sometimes that means we just stop praying. Other times that means there's a little bit of bitterness, a little grumbling. But one of the things about Abraham is there is this humility as he approaches God. He is in one measure calling God to account for his character, but he is by no way saying this is how you have to do it. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is it doesn't necessarily tell us why God answers the way he answers or doesn't answer us the way he answers, but we do know this, that he has given us his son. He has given you his son. And if he has done that, if he has not spared his son, right, Romans, how will you not along with him graciously give us all things? So there's this humility with Abraham, there's this boldness. But thirdly, there's a love. It's interesting, if you read Genesis, Abraham has earlier been mistreated by Sodom. And when he hears about the city and God's plan to destroy it, he doesn't say, good riddance. In fact, it's interesting, he doesn't just pray for his nephew Lot. 
who's there. He prays for the entire city. Those that he disagrees with, those that have hurt him, those that see things very different than he sees the world. You know, Abraham is not a man who doesn't care about injustice or oppression. But nevertheless, he is marked by compassion and love. You know, we see this actually throughout Scripture. Uh, consider Jesus. Before his entrance into Jerusalem, he knows he's going to be rejected. And what does he do? He weeps over the city. Or think about the Apostle Paul, Romans 9. So often he is hurt and afflicted because of his own people, and yet he says in Romans 9, I would hope I would be accursed for their sake. There's this sense of just great compassion. In other words, the more you lean in, the more you understand who God is, the more, the more you know him, when you come face to face with the evils of the world, on the one hand, you don't minimize the wickedness, nevertheless, you move forward with compassion. So let me ask you, let me ask me, what, what is our posture towards this city? Listen, it, put it this way. If the gospel's true, that you're a sinner saved not by your works, but by the grace of God, then it means that anyone and all people can be a recipient of this grace and welcomed in. And that ought to change a posture of a community who centers around that towards their city. Do you have a love for it? But lastly, hope. Did you catch this? Abraham is praying for Sodom, a place filled with cruelty, oppression, violence, perverted sexuality, idolatry, pride, greedy consumption. It was a place of em- empty of compassion or care for the needy. And throughout Scripture, Sodom is a prototype of how bad things can get in this world because of sin. And I don't know about you, but if that's Sodom's reputation, when you hear what's going to happen to it, you might just think, oh, it's a lost cause. And yet he prays. You know, put it this way, it doesn't take long to open up your social media feed, your news app. And in many ways, we see the world has not changed, Right? But the question is, do you have the kind of hope that Abraham has? You know, Bisgrove notes that in the gospel, we not only have a king who suffers on the cross, we have now a king who is raised from the dead. Which means his kingdom has come, not fully, But it has come. This is the epilogue. The tomb is empty. And it's not complete, but it will be someday. And that means no matter where you are, who you are, there's hope. 
Let me put it this way practically this week as you think about this. Think about this phrase that Jesus says in his, as he teaches disciples, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus invites us to pray that, he is saying this, in the very moments of our lives, at work, in your marriage, in your friendships, to those who around you who don't yet know or follow Jesus, would your ways, Jesus, would your good rule come in those situations? For example, when you consider the ways of the city where there's injustice and oppression, where that's present, Jesus, would your kingdom come? Your will be done. And don't you see Abraham's prayer here? Into the very moments of your life, like wherever you are tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., do you understand? Abraham shows us a way to pray with boldness, that you come to a God who is your father, to pray with the humility, one who has given his son, to pray with a love because of how you've been loved, and to pray with a hope because he's risen. In other words, don't rely on your circumstances. Rest on the assurance of the empty tomb. So, Vine Church, let's pray with a boldness. Let's pray with a humility. Let's pray with a love. And let's pray with a hope for the city. Let's pray. Father, would you give us a boldness to approach you in prayer? Would you make us a people who are humble to trust you in terms of how you answer and how you're working out your ways in this world? Would you make us a people who are marked on the one hand as angry towards injustice and oppression and yet filled with compassion and love at the same moment? knowing how you've been that towards us. And Father, would you form us to be a people who are not marked by despair, but rather marked by a hope grounded in the news that the tomb is empty and you will return and you will make all things right. And so we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.